I mean, when it works, it's great. But when it does it, it is terrible. Like for the nurse and for the patient, it's terrible. Do you have any like pearls or pitfalls when it comes to bladder irrigation? And when is it time for us to be like, that's it. I'm throwing the towel. I'm calling the neurologist. there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response Run Podcast. Today, we're talking all things urological emergencies. So how would you handle them? And when is it time to call the urologist? Joining me today, I have a board-certified urologist to break it all down. Dr. Sigal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, super glad to have you. So Dr. Sigal, can you give my audience just a brief introduction? Like, how did you get into urology and what do you love about it? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I get that question every day, you know, because <laughs> why did you choose urology of all the different things you could choose? Well, I think that when you go to med school, you have to figure out whether you want to be a surgeon or you want to be a medical doctor. I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. And you walk around the hospital and you see the surgeons that are happy and the ones that aren't. And the urologists always seem happy. True. And so you're kind of figuring out why are they so happy? And I think it's because there's a huge breadth to the field, right? We do big surgeries. Sure. We take bladders out. We make new bladders out of bowel. We do robotic surgery. We do laser surgery. We also do small stuff like vasectomies. If you want to transition later and just do office-based stuff, you can too. So there's a huge breadth to the field. And I think that's one of the big appeals. Also, there's a huge need for urologists, right? It's always good to be in a field where there's a huge need for them. And there's a huge need for urologists. And that's one of the reasons we created our YouTube channel just for education. There's a big need for urology education. So those are kind of the highlights for why I chose urology, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, it's like really cool arts and crafts uh, <laughs> and also plumbing kind of mixed together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll sterile. talk about it later. Sterile we are plumbing and sterile arts and crafts. But yeah, very, very important stuff. All right. Yeah. And so before we dive into some like tips and tricks and hacks and how to manage some of the main emergencies, like urological emergencies, do you have any crazy stories from your field of expertise? Like, what's the weirdest or most interesting thing that you've encountered as a urologist? Well, I think we could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know what? I think back to um, the craziest. I trained in Philadelphia. and We saw a lot of interesting things over there. The craziest stories are probably what I have from residency. I remember, you know, I think always the most interesting things are the things that we fish out of people's bladders, right? So right. believe it or not, people do, for a variety of reasons, get some kind of self-gratification from putting things in their urethra. I know that sounds nuts, but some people do get gratification of that, but it can get stuck in there, right? If they push too far. 
I remember fishing out a fishing lure from somebody's bladder, like one of those fake worms. I got it out of somebody's bladder. Also, this was uh, pretty astounding. We got called from the ER when I was a resident and they showed us an x-ray of somebody and you saw a screw sitting right over where their bladder was on the KUB study. Uh, And then we got that screw out of their bladder. So those are a couple of things that we've gotten out of people's urinary tract that are relatively unique. Yeah, definitely some fancy plumbing there. Yeah, right. I mean, urology is the most psychiatric of all the surgical subspecialties, right? And then the other thing was, I remember back in training, there was a guy that um, there are constrictive bands that can be used in the right circumstance to help you get a sustained erection, but really strong constrictive metal rings are not advisable. And if somebody puts that at the base of the penis and the penis gets engorged, guess what? You can't get that ring off. So sometimes we have to use some kind of surrogate jaws of life to get those off. And we had to do that in residency (laughs) a couple of times. Those are a couple examples. But again, I could come back at some point. We could talk about all the different things that I've seen in my career. Sounds interesting for sure. Awesome. All right. So I wanted to just kind of open up with you sharing some of the most concerning urological emergencies that you see and what you think nurses need to know about them. Yeah, I think so. You know, all joking aside, we see a ton of urologic emergencies. And one of the things that's important to know about urologic emergencies, and this is one of the reasons why we chose urology, is a lot of these emergencies can be fixed quickly And the nurses are the front lines for these emergencies. The biggest one probably is urinary retention, right? So, and we'll talk about catheters a little bit later, but relieving urinary retention. You know, this is a kind of a nurse empowerment thing where they can fix this immediately. If a catheter is clogged and somebody has 500 cc's in their bladder, that is an emergency. And a simple flush of the catheter can fix that emergency, right? really bad hematuria that somebody has, clog the catheter, again, flushing it can fix that problem. So I think nurses are super important for urinary retention. And sometimes it's unclear as to what's going on. And it just takes an astute nurse to say, you know what, let's check a bladder scan. This person's had abdominal pain for X amount of time. You know, we're not sure why. The surgeons don't think that it's a GI cause for it. Let's check a bladder scan and see how much is left over in their bladder. Because sometimes you can't palpate the bladder. You don't know whether they're having yeah. clinical urinary retention. The person might be a diabetic, so they have a difficulty, they have a difficulty sensing that their bladder is full. And that might be a huge emergency that an astute nurse checks a bladder scan and figures it out. So I think retention is is a huge place where nurses can be advocates for patients quickly and fix the problem. Priapism, right? I mean, you did a podcast one time on priapism, which was fabulous. But nurses are the first ones that kind of get the wheels in motion to fix priapism, right? So when somebody comes in the ER with priapism, the first thing nurses should do is get them on a monitor, put them on oxygen, alert the attending, this is what's going on, call for the phenylephrine. Obviously, don't administer it, but call for the phenylephrine. Get some butterfly syringes at the bedside. Get ready for the aspiration irrigation. Remember, we try to relieve priapism, which is, again, a prolonged erection, as soon as possible. Because if we don't, it can cause permanent erectile dysfunction. So the quicker you can get the wheels in motion for getting the urologist set up to fix that problem, the better it's going to be for the patient and the less chance that they're going to have of having permanent erectile dysfunction. So that's probably the second one I'd want to highlight. 
The third one is torsion, right? So sometimes testicular torsion is what I mean to say. So sometimes the nurses will be the first one that sees the patient and starts triaging them. And when you get a history on somebody's testicular pain, there are some red flag symptoms that suggest torsion. If it happens in a young person, if they don't have a history of acute testicular pain, if it happened because of a traumatic event, kid was playing hockey, and then all of a sudden they had this acute pain associated with abdominal pain and nausea, vomiting. When you hear those red flags that I just said, the bell should go off in your head that, oh my gosh, maybe this is testicular torsion, and you want to alert somebody quickly. And oftentimes, one of the most important things is letting the ultrasound team know that they need to come in, right? Because ultrasound teams are oftentimes not in the hospital in the middle of the night. So if you let your MD know and say, listen, we got to get the ultrasound team, you can be the one that saves that individual's testicle because testicular torsion, really, we try to fix that, get them in the operating room and untwist it within four hours. So nurses are the first ones that are kind of triaging testicular torsion. One of the other things is, is hematuria, right? If somebody's having significant hematuria or blood in the urine from their prostate, a simple intervention that nurses can do, provided the patient has a catheter in, is to put that catheter on tension, right? So if that if the prostate's bleeding and you pull on that catheter a little bit, now it's putting pressure on the prostate to decrease the chance of it bleeding in the same way that if somebody was exsanguinating from an incision or a wound on their arm, you would write, you would write, you would put pressure on it. Exactly. We do the same thing. We just use the Foley catheter balloon as the mechanism that we put pressure on the prostate. Can I ask a question on that one? Yeah. Do you just do it manually or do you like get a traction set up or like weigh it down with a bag of saline or something? Like how do you create that constant tension on it? Right. That's a great question. Yeah, we do it manually. So you know, we'll just, we'll pull on the catheter. We do this in the operating room. It's a very effective strategy to stop prostatic bleeding. We pull on the catheter manually to where the penis is on some stretch. I know it sounds uncomfortable, but it's better than the guy bleeding out, right? And then we um, we tape it to their leg, you know? So it's, it's relatively crude in the way we do it, but highly effective. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow. Learned something new. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's some good stuff to delve into. I wanted to go back to the torsion. How do you differentiate, okay, this, I mean, obviously ultrasound, but if you don't have ultrasound eyes, are there questions you ask to figure out, okay, this is probably torsion or this is probably like infection or epididymitis or something else going on? Yeah, great question. So I think that one of the things is if you, you can ask the individual if they had an acute onset of it. Now, it's not always trauma to the testicle, right? So if somebody has they have an embryonic reason why the testicle is not attached to the scrotal skin, they're going to pre be predisposed to getting torsion even if they step wrong off the curb, right? But the difference oftentimes is that they say, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I started having this testicular pain that radiated into my abdomen. Now it radiates into the abdomen because the nerves that are in the testicle go all the way up to the abdomen. It's the same reason why guys have a tough time with a vasectomy sometimes or why it hurts in your belly when you get kicked when you get kicked down there, okay? So I think the acute onset is a, is a super important question for nurses to ask. Do you have nausea and vomiting with the pain, okay? So that's, so typically epididymitis or epididymal orchitis is not accompanied with nausea vomiting, uh, but testicular torsion is. So that's, um, that's a difference. Gotcha, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, 
Those are definitely some emergencies to like keep on your your radar. I want to transition and talk about some troubleshooting of two different skills that we're all trained to perform in nursing school, but in my experience, it is very different on the mannequin than in real life. So let's start with Foley catheter insertion. What are some common mistakes that you see or tips and tricks to navigate the more challenging Foley catheter insertions? The classic one that we see is the balloon was inflated in the wrong place, right? And so the advice that I'd give nurses or anybody putting a catheter is that when you put a catheter in, as you mentioned, you know, you've got an adept training in placing a Foley catheter, but don't inflate the balloon until the catheter is hubbed in a man, all right? What I mean to say is this. So people are classically trained oftentimes that when you put the catheter in and you get urine out, you're in the bladder, that's not always the case, all right? If you think about the catheter, if you take a catheter and you look at it, the tip of it has holes that are draining urine, obviously, but the balloon is behind that, right? So it's possible that when you get urine, especially if somebody has a lot of urine in their bladder, urine's gonna gush through the catheter, you're gonna get urine back, you're gonna say, oh, I'm in the bladder, but the balloon part of the catheter is not yet in the bladder. So what you wanna always do is hub it. So you get urine back coming through the catheter, fabulous, push it in even more until all you can see is that Y, right? The junction of the balloon port and the catheter drainage. And then once you're in there and you're getting urine out, now it's probably a safe time to inflate the Foley catheter. Not doing so can cause kind of a mess. It can cause false passages. It can cause urologists that sometimes aren't the friendliest, you know, those, those sorts of things. And it can cause intractable hematuria. So um, that's the first tip I would give for Foley catheters, Sarah. Okay. All right. How about if it's just like not flowing? If it's not flowing, first thing I would do is flush the catheter. The classic way that you flush a catheter, you know, I've seen um, sometimes if a nurse doesn't know, they'll flush the catheter with like a like a same kind of flush you would use for an IV. That's not what you want to do. You want to use a Tumi syringe, the same kind of syringe that you flush a nasogastric tube with. Okay, you want to put 60 cc's in, and you want to make sure that you get 60 cc's out. So whatever you put in, you should get that out. All right. If you're unsure, sometimes it's not clear. Am I getting the fluid out? Am I not? Do they have a bladder spasm, and so they leaked around the catheter? You can always use the bladder scanner in the setting of having a Foley catheter. Right. So if you if you have a catheter and you're flushing it and you're not sure, you put a bladder scan on there and the bladder scan's low, it suggests that the catheter is probably draining. As we approach the end of 2023 and eagerly anticipate what 2024 has in store, many of us reflect on fitness goals or habits. If you're listening to my podcast right now, it's clear that you're committed to investing in your growth as a nurse. So as you consider how you wanna spend your time in the coming year, imagine spending your time at the hospital feeling not just like a survivor, but a thriving professional. You have spent so much time giving to others, so why don't you give a gift to yourself? My Rapid Response Academy went live a few weeks ago and it's exceeding all my expectations. Engaging discussions, live sessions every Friday, and a community of dedicated nurses. This is what makes the Academy truly special. Joining this community means more than just being a part of a group. It means being surrounded by like-minded nurses who share the desire to evolve and invest in their professional journeys. Sure, textbooks offer information, but here's the thing. If all you needed to do to become a confident nurse who knows your stuff and can handle any emergency was to read more textbooks, then you could have already done it. Becoming a confident, capable nurse requires more. 
Learning alongside peers, processing challenges as fellow humans, and sharing life experiences, this is where true personal and professional growth happens. The camaraderie of a community amplifies your ability to absorb wisdom and accelerates your development in ways that solitary study just cannot match. So if you're ready to supercharge your learning, to invest in yourself so you can better care for others, now is the time to join the Rap Response Academy. If you act fast, you'll secure a 25% discount before the offer expires in just a few days. Come 2024, new members will be enrolling at the full price. So for more details, click the show notes for a link to seize your discount and elevate your nursing career in the new year. Another tip, which I kind of wanted to transition to is CUDE catheters, right? Yeah. Everybody says, just put a CUDE catheter in. But has anybody ever told you which way the tip is when you put the catheter into the urethral meatus? Probably not, right? So it's confusing, right? So you can obviously, a CUDE catheter is a catheter, just to review, that is meant to traverse the prostate in men. It's got a curved tip on the end, and that curved tip allows the catheter to more easily go past the prostate into the bladder, all right? But the problem is you can obviously see that curved tip when it's outside the body, but once it starts to go inside the body, you don't know which way the curve is. And you always want that curve at 12 o'clock. There's two tricks I want your listeners to know about putting in the catheter and how to know whether that tip is up, down, left, or right. If you look at where the balloon port is on the catheter, you want that to be at 12 o'clock because the balloon port will always be symmetric with the tip of the Foley catheter, okay? That's the one thing. And then if you look carefully at a Foley catheter, it has what I call a vein on it, V-E-I-N. So it's got a dark line on the Foley catheter, and that will always line up with the 12 o'clock position and the, the curved tip that's up on a CUDE catheter. So when that catheter disappears into somebody's urethral meatus, you can look at the balloon port and you can also look you can also look at the vein at the 12 o'clock position of the catheter, and then you'll know that you're you're putting it in the right direction. Gotcha, gotcha. So as you're placing it, you're making sure that the port is facing up so that you get the, the curve going the direction that's actually gonna help you and not make things even harder for you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Awesome. So that's two days are great for male catheter insertion. What about the females? Sometimes the anatomy just does not look like what it did on the mannequin in nursing school. Do you have any tips for visualizing that to make sure that you get first time success? Yeah, right. Great question. So I had somebody that trained me that used to say that if you can't get a catheter in a woman, it's always an effort issue. That's not true, but it's partially true. And what I mean to say is that the urethra is much shorter in women, so there's less chance of a stricture, although there can be a stricture in women. But oftentimes, their body habitus is such that you just can't see the urethral meatus, right? Which is very difficult. So the first tip I always give, give people is get all hands on deck, right? Don't be bashful oh, yeah. about it. If you can't visualize the urethral meatus, call for aids, call for help. Say, listen, I need help retracting so I can see what the heck I'm doing. Get a light in there. That's probably the first tip. And that can actually most of the time allow you to place a catheter in a in woman. Now, sometimes that's hard, right? Because they're in a bed, they're immobile, their hips are kind of sunken into the bed and you just can't, no matter how many people you get in there, you can't retract it and at the same time visualize the urethral meatus. So this is one tip I'd give your listeners. If you get a bedpan and you turn that bedpan upside down, 
So the part of the bedpan that's taller is right under the patient's hips and slide that under the patient. Now their hips are facing upwards in the bed, okay? And then between that and then the retraction that you have from people helping you, usually you can see the urethral meatus much better. So those are the two tricks I would give for, for female catheter insertion. That's good. I mean, I've had times where I'm like, all right, your left leg, your right leg, yeah. your left labia, your right labia, your flashlight. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> and then we, we get success. Yeah, we do that too. I mean, it's, oftentimes we're by ourselves, right? So we're using like left hand, right hand, elbows, you know, pinkies. We're, used, we're like we're like the one, one person show. But if you have more hands on deck, use them. Yeah. What about whenever you put the catheter in, but it's still leaking around the catheter side, even though the bulb's inflated? So when you see that, it can be very confusing because it, you say, wait, the catheter's in the bladder. It seems like it's functional, but the person is leaking around the catheter. There's usually one or one of two things going on there. Either the patient's having a bladder spasm. And what that is, is basically if the catheter is in the bladder, it's a foreign body, obviously, in the bladder, and it's going to make the muscle of the bladder contract, all right? It can contract involuntarily. When it contracts involuntarily, urine's going to leak around the catheter. So the bladder's getting stimulated, it contracts, urine leaks around the catheter. That could be what's going on. The other thing that could be going on is the catheter could be clogged, which obviously is an emergency. The way you can distinguish between those two things is what we mentioned before, flushing the catheter. If it's a true bladder spasm, unless it's a perpetual prolonged bladder spasm, you should be able to flush the catheter and get that fluid back. But if, if it's clogged, then when you flush the catheter, it'll start draining and then you may not get the, the fluid back initially if it's truly clogged. All right. That's good tips. Can we talk about CBI? Sure. <laughs> so continuous bladder irrigation. I mean, when it works, it's great. But when it does it, it is terrible. Like for the nurse and for the patient, it's terrible. Do you have any like pearls or pitfalls when it comes to bladder irrigation? And when is it time for us to be like, that's it. I'm throwing the towel. I'm calling yeah. the neurologist. I know that you want us to troubleshoot first, but there are times when like we've done our things. When is it time to call you? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that's hard about CBI is sometimes they'll throw, especially with the staffing issues, they'll throw CBI patients on any floor, right? So somebody that's not used to dealing with CBI will have to deal with CBI, and it's a difficult situation for them. In the same way that if we see a, a surgery that we don't do that much, it's a difficult situation for us. I think the first thing that people should try to do is create an analogy in their mind for what CBI is, right? So CBI is, it's like, think about a bucket that's your bladder, not your bladder, but the patient's bladder. And then there's fluid, you have a hose going into that bladder, and then you have a siphon coming out. That's all that CBI is, okay? We're plumbers as urologists, and this is just a plumbing situation. So so fluid's going in and fluid should be coming out. So think about that and then know your catheter ports. It's a three-way catheter because there's three ports. One is a balloon port, one is an inflow, which is usually on one side, and one is the outflow, which is in the center. So once you understand that, that's the first step in trying to troubleshoot CBI. So you got called to the bedside, the patient is writhing in pain, they say, I'm not peeing, I'm not peeing, I'm not peeing. You look at the catheter, you're like, oh my gosh, it's not draining. What is the first thing that you do? And this is the most important thing with CBI that you got to remember when it's malfunctioning. 
stop the inflow, right? So, yeah, so you don't want that, like I said before, you don't want that bucket overflowing, right? So I've seen cases where that's actually caused perforations of the bladder and we've taken them to the operating room to fix it. So the first thing to do is stop the inflow. So once you've stopped the inflow, the next thing to do is flush the catheter. I would say the vast majority of times, so people are on CBI typically because of hematuria and they have a clot that's obstructed the flow of urine as the outflow. If you can flush the catheter, typically you can get it so the catheter is functional and all the, and it's actually very gratifying, right? It's like popping a pimple. You see all this fluid and urine rush out and you know that you've relieved the problem. So that's the second tip I would give for the CBI. So you've stopped the inflow, you've flushed the catheter, it's still not draining. What is one option? So at that point, by all means, you can you know bump it up, call the MD, call the urologist, say, you know, do you have any other tips for me? The first thing we would probably do, and nurses could consider doing this, is upsizing the catheter, right? So there are particular catheters. Oftentimes, if patients come from the emergency room, they may have a small caliber catheter, 14 French, 16 French, even 18 French. And these catheters, they're a smaller caliber, so they're more likely to get obstructed by a clot. So one of the first things that we'll do, and nurses are capable of doing this, is just upsize the catheter, right? So if you look at um, what are classically called as called hematuria catheters, the eye on the end of the catheter will be much bigger. So that clot that's getting irrigated in the bladder is more likely to flow out. One of our favorite catheters is a Rush catheter, R-U-S-C-H catheter, those have the biggest eyes on the end. I mean, I've very rarely seen those get clotted off and most most hospitals will have them, silicon Rush catheters. So that could be the next step that nurses would take is to upsize the catheter, get a catheter with a big eye on it to, to drain the clots out more effectively. But I think it, it, certainly if you've done that and it's still clotting off, it's time to call the urologist. Okay, gotcha. And then how can you tell if the pain they're experiencing is from like a bladder spasm versus they're retaining? And how would you encourage a nurse to troubleshoot to figure out bladder spasm versus retention causing the pain? If it's a bladder spasm, you're going to see fluid running around the catheter and there's going to be drainage via the catheter, right? You're going to have both of those things going on. If the catheter is truly clogged, you're going to see fluid coming from the urethromiatus around the catheter, but nothing's going to be draining through the catheter itself. Yeah. And the bladder scanner can also help you in figuring out what's going on as well. Like if Absolutely. Yeah. Use that as a, it's a great tool, right? Because it's on every nursing floor. I mean, if you're trying to do some detective work, it's in the middle of the night, yeah, use the bladder scanner to help figure it out. Absolutely. All right. Are there any tips or pearls of wisdom you want to share with my audience when it comes to just managing urology patients in general? Yeah, I think one of the things is if you have a urology patient on the floor um, and they had a urologic surgery, make sure you ask the urologist or ask the MD if this catheter can come out. Sometimes those catheters are very difficult to place. And I know that nurses oftentimes feel bad if they've taken a catheter out and then we're coming in to try to put the catheter in using cystoscopic guidance, et cetera. So, I mean, that's a simple thing, but sometimes the catheter is the most important thing for us as urologists after urologic surgery to promote healing, to decrease the chance of any bladder perforation, et cetera. So that's one, that's one little tip. You know, what we do sometimes is sophisticated, but sometimes it's super simple. So always think about the plumbing analogy, whether you're thinking about stones in the ureter, somebody with urosepsis, a catheter that, that's not draining, we are plumbers. We're just trying to get everything draining in urology. So always use that analogy to try to think about what 
what the urologist or the MD on call might be considering in the urinary tract. This is one other little tip that I always like is, you know, hematuria oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes will look kind of worse than it is. And if you're looking at the catheter, if you're really trying to assess the true urine color, look at the color of the urine in the tube itself rather than the catheter bag, okay? The catheter bag is always going to look darker than the tube. The tube itself is going to be the true urine color. And one of the, this is like an old-fashioned thing, but if you want to know whether somebody has really significant hematuria, if you take a newspaper and you put it behind the tube and you can read that newspaper, it's probably, not always, but probably not that bad of hematuria. But if it's so dark that you can't even see the print in that newspaper behind it, then you got a problem. That's a good way to look at it. So we don't freak out whenever it's just a little bit pink. I like it. I like it. All right. Dr. Sagal, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about caring for urology patients? Yeah, great. Thanks so much. So we created a YouTube channel, EuroCoach. Uh, we took the top 100 questions that we got from patients and we answered them in very plain terms that everybody could easily understand. It's a patient education resource, but it's been super helpful for nurses. Things like what is green scrotum drainage? What, what is a high PSA? How do I manage a patient with a ureteral stone? What does it mean when somebody has a stone in the ureter? Because in all likelihood, a patient that you're caring for in an acute setting has some type of urologic problem. And if you're looking to get information on the fly in the middle of the night, you don't want to read a textbook. You want to hear how we talk about it with patients so you can understand what's going on with them. Then YouTube at Eurocoach is where we are. U-R-O-C-O-A-C-H. Yeah, it's really good, guys. You should check it out. I feel like as a nurse, you're also an educator and Trishalan's just a really good educator. <laughs> and so watch his videos. So when patients ask you questions, you're like, well, let me explain it to you this way, which I learned on YouTube from your Absolutely. Because it's, it's a really good breakdown. I would highly, highly recommend it. And then what about on social media? We're on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We are on TikTok. Eurocoach is everywhere. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you for taking the time to break down these urological emergencies and all the tips and the tricks and the hacks. Very much appreciated. Guys, go check out his YouTube channel. It's excellent. Thank you so much for coming today. Really appreciate you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN. 